Well, I am, as sometimes happens, uh, on fumes this morning, having not slept since the night before last. And uh, so this will either be the best message you've ever heard or the worst. <laughs> and I'm not sure yet which it will be, although since it does have to do with humility, it could be the worst for me. So uh, we'll, we'll see how that, how that goes. Um, for a quarter of a century, uh, as Jonathan mentioned, we have been tracking uh, the move of God across the face of the earth. And we certainly have never been in a time or season where we need it more than we do now. And uh, we have not only chronicled the stories, but we have investigated uh, to see if we could discern some of the underlying principles, some of the common threads that ran through all of these remarkable uh, cases. And uh, it is, it's just been fascinating. Uh, I have a, a message uh, that takes longer than I have this morning, called The Curious Logic of Revival. And it's a series of almost 20 counterintuitive truths or principles as it relates to revival. And I began to realize the more we scrutinize this phenomena that to really understand it, you have to start thinking like God. You can't think like you. You can't think like human leaders. You have to take that hat off and begin to, to, to see not only what God is doing in a pattern, but why he does that. And I, I want to talk to you this morning about one of the most important factors that we have discovered. I, I don't know whether I'll be able to get through all of this message since I've never delivered it before uh, this morning. If, if not, then we'll try to pick it up uh, wherever we leave off on uh, Friday. Hope that you can come back because we're going to show uh, another little video and, and talk some more about transforming revival. But we, one of the things that we learned is the powerful role that humility plays in uh, divine action. I, I know a number of years ago that uh, we became very curious uh, to know what kind of people God chose to work with as revival catalysts. Who did he choose? What kind of people were they? And uh, so we investigated this for a while, and we, we realized that there really weren't very many patterns at all. Uh, there were mayors that God used in some of these communities. In others, they were, there were teachers or law enforcement officers or educators, thinking of a case in... Uh, in East Malaysia, a dramatic case, one of the most dramatic cases of revival in our time, and it started in a, in a school. Uh, and we have seen uh, retired people. We've seen children as young as four years of age that God has worked through and used as catalysts in these mighty moves of God in, the, in this particular case, which happened in Omkhoi province in Thailand, over 40,000 people came into the kingdom of God because these little kids got up every morning at 3 a.m. to cry out to God. No adults, no, no adults told them to do it or asked them to do it. They just did it. And so we, we almost came to the point, we realized that it had nothing, the kind of people God chose had nothing to do with their age or their gender or their their profession or their station in life. Um, and 
the longer we looked, the more I began to despair of finding any definitive thing that I could uh, conclude about uh, the kind of people that God uses as revival catalysts. And just as I was about ready to close up, it hit me. Hidden in plain sight, it hit me like a locomotive. The one common feature that every single one of these catalysts had was a profound humility. It was humility that drew the presence, the favor of God to these people and to the places that they represented. So uh, this morning, uh, this may not seem like a revival message, but it really is. It is in my opinion, the starting place for any meaningful conversation about spiritual awakening. So this message is entitled, Humility, the Mother Virtue. Malcolm Muggeridge is a, or was, he's passed on to glory now, was a, a British writer, uh, an academic, a, quite a, quite an amazing guy, amazing writer. He was educated at Cambridge University uh, before serving in editorial capacities at the Manchester Guardian and the Daily Telegraph. He spent five years as the editor for one of Britain's most notable magazines called Punch. And uh, in the late 1960s, he served as rector of Edinburgh University. And late in life, he found Christ. And he proceeded to sum up his illustrious career in a two-volume autobiography entitled Chronicles of Wasted Time. So his whole outlook, his whole perspective on life, including his own, was changed radically by the presence of God. And he said, it, it seems to me quite extraordinary that anyone should have failed to notice, especially during the last half century, a diabolical presence in the world, pulling downwards as gravity does, instead of pressing upwards as trees and plants do when they grow and reach so resolutely and beautifully after the light. It, it is a counterforce to creativity, destructive in its nature and purpose, raging far and wide like a forest fire and burning in the heart's core, pinpointed there, a fiery tongue of fierce desire. Have we not seen this devil's destructiveness making a bonfire of past, present, and future in one mighty conflagration? Have we not smelt him, rancid sweet, touched him, slippery soft, glimpsed him, sometimes in a mirror, with drooling, greedy mouth? misty ravening eyes and flushed flesh. Who can miss him in those blackest of all moments when God seems to have disappeared, leaving the devil in charge of a nameless universe? I think probably all of us have, maybe in an unguarded moment, felt this way in recent months. It just seems like there's no end to the madness that swirls around us, and it seems to be getting worse. Pride, arrogance, haughtiness, hubris are rising with an increasing force and current through our streets, our sports arenas, our classrooms, social media, Hollywood, in the halls of government. We have all seen it. We've all heard it. 
But there's something else there, out there, that is easier to miss, but even more disturbing. Do you know it? Have you seen it? Look closer. Now lower. There it is. The shadows of pride are not extending toward us. They are being cast from us. It's all too easy to spot the greasy, oozing mass of pride in our nation and in our society. And as this chief of all sin metastasizes, our life force is weakening rapidly and unto death. It is a horror show played out in the theater of reality. And those who see, those who know, and those who care have but one question. Is there anything to be done? Before we can take up this question, we need to gain a better understanding of what it is that we're up against. In C.S. Lewis's classic, Mere Christianity, he writes, according to Christian teachers, the essential vice, the utmost evil, is pride. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all of that are mere flea bites in comparison. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. Now, to understand why this is so, we need to consider God's intent in creation and our respective roles. Very few Christians have thought more deeply on this subject than the South African pastor and revivalist, Andrew Murray. A man whose writings have been my constant companion these past months and who became really the primary inspiration for this message. Murray once said his paramount desire was that not a single moment of my life would be spent outside the light, the love, and the joy of God's presence. Let me read that again. His desire was that not a single moment of my life be spent outside the light, the love, and the joy of God's presence, and not a moment without the entire surrender of myself as a vessel for him to fill full of his spirit and love. According to Murray, God's initial purpose was to reveal himself in and through created beings by communicating to them as much of his goodness and glory as they were capable of receiving. But because God is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power and the one in whom all things exist, his creatures would need to relate to him out of a posture of absolute unceasing dependence. In Eden, as we know, Satan questioned God's character and then invited Eve to become like God, which was an end which God wished for his creatures. But it was not to be attained through the illegitimate means of independence. And of course, this is the very route that the devil himself took 
We know that he was created beautiful and powerful and undoubtedly attracted a measure of attention. I don't personally think that he believed that he could overthrow God, at least initially, but in the fashion of many church splits, he coveted his own freedom and audience and set out to create an independent kingdom with as many of heaven's staff as he could entice. To recruit followers, he used arguments against God that were cased in the lie that the creator was claiming preeminent authority for his own sake rather than for the sake of his created dependence. And the only way that God could counter this lie once it began to spread was through humility. So he left the glories of heaven for a fallen world. He emptied himself and he became obedient even unto death. This is an amazing thing. Never gets old, never worn out. Now, although Satan has fallen and his doom is assured, at least for the time being, he continues to stalk the children of men with guile and with persistence. He hoists the banner of independence at every turn, every crossroads, regaling wayward and insecure souls with half-truths and flattery. Believe in yourself. You deserve better. You can change the world. Make your mark. Fight for power. You answer to no one but yourself. And sadly, despite all of the flattery, all of the campaigning, all of the promotion, all of the efforts today, the world's cities are overflowing with anguish, homelessness, and violence. The rootstock of all misery, pain, and deception in our lives and in the surrounding world is pride. When everyone believes their arguments, their looks or their lives are the best thing going, things get competitive. And Lewis, C.S. Lewis, makes an interesting observation. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer or cleverer or better looking than others. And we feel this competition daily in society around us. Have you noticed how utterly fatiguing it is to be in the presence of a proud and arrogant person? The man or the woman who thinks so much of themselves that they expect our immediate acknowledgement through words and body language. I mean, you'd rather search for a bathroom stall or step off the curb in front of an oncoming taxi. But how often do we drive people to such thoughts? In the words of Andrew Murray, all lack of love, all indifference to the needs, feelings, the weakness of others, all sharp and hasty judgments and comments, so often excused under the plea of being outright and honest, all manifestations of temper, touchiness and irritation, all feelings of bitterness and estrangement have their root in pride. 
Now, even worse, pride is as slippery and chameleon-like as its father. We just don't see it in ourselves. In Murray's words, there is nothing so natural to man, nothing so insidious and hidden from our sight, nothing so difficult and dangerous as pride. Now, I'm probably like you a little bit. I have a visceral reaction to haughtiness and arrogance. I just can't stomach internet influencers. Hey, you guys, athletic prima donnas, theological blowhards, commercialized prophets. I can't handle it. I have a good nose for pride in others. Strangely, though, it doesn't work as well when it comes to my own character and demeanor. It's like the person with bad breath, but just has no idea. Pride has its root and its strength in what Murray calls a terrible spiritual power. And this power is both outside of us in the form of an active devil in the vain enticements of a fallen world and hidden within the deceptive inner spaces of a self-driven character. So as needful as it is to acknowledge and confess pride as a fruit of our own making, it is also important to recognize its satanic origins. It's not always easy to do that. Murray points out that the disciples had a fervent attachment to Jesus. They'd forsaken all for him. The Father had revealed to them that he was the Christ of God. They believed in him. They loved him. They obeyed his commandments. When others turned back, they held fast. They were ready to die with him. But underneath all of this, there remained a dark power, a power whose repulsive features, whose very existence, for that matter, lurked largely undetected. They were hosts, as are we, to a self-life that was still very much alive, fueled by a diabolical pride that betrayed itself on occasion through their inquiries into who would be the greatest in heaven and who might occupy the seats of honor at the master's side. It was a self-pride that had to be slain and cast out before they could become the bold anointed witnesses of Pentecost. Now, having spent a few minutes uh, discussing pride, I want to turn our attention now to its counterpart, humility. In the same way in which pride is the rootstock of all sin, so humility is the source of all other graces or virtues, the mother virtue. So why aren't more Christians recognizing the importance of cultivating humility at all costs? That's really a good question, I think. In almost every quarter of Christendom today, humility remains poorly understood and underappreciated. Now, our tendency is to associate it with penitence and contrition. We get this from passages like 2 Chronicles 7.14 that link the act of humbling oneself with the act of repentance. 
But humility is actually something infinitely deeper. We're not going to realize its wonders if we think the only way to arouse them is by keeping the soul occupied with its sin. I'll unpack this in a minute. And once again, I think Murray puts it best. Humility is not something which we bring to God or that he bestows. It is simply the sense of entire nothingness which comes when we see how truly God is all and in which we make our way for God to be all. Now, the spectacle of Christ's incarnation, which I'm, I know you will agree is an act of humility so unprecedented and unthinkable, really, that the heavenly host could only look on in open mouth wonder. That incarnation launched a process in which God would define this mother virtue by his own living example. He washed the disciples' feet. He spent time with the marginalized. He served others without thought for his own comfort. He took the insults and abuse of men without retaliation. He relinquished his very life out of love for us and obedience to the Father. That's what humility looks like. His selflessness while he was here on earth was always on display. It is in heaven too. We're just not there to see it. It was always on display and it was reinforced by his unceasing use of terms that reflected absolute obedience in servanthood. It's an amazing list. M many of these come from the Gospel of John. The Son can do nothing of himself. I can of my own self do nothing. My judgment is just because I seek not mine own will. I receive not glory from men. I am come not to do mine own will. My teaching is not mine. I have not come of my own accord. I do nothing of myself. I seek not mine own glory. The words that I say, I speak not from myself. This is where Jesus' head and heart were stationed during his ministry on earth. Whosoever will be chief among you, he said, let him be your servant, even as the Son of Man came to serve. Jesus' teaching was always so rich and potent because he lived it. As a man, Jesus fulfilled God's intended destiny for us by living a life of perfect humility and obedience. Humility is the mark of Christ, and it will be the supreme and sole standard of glory in heaven. The lowliest is the nearest to God. I know that's true in the depth of my being. I have met these past years people that nobody knows in this world, but they're famous in heaven. I will be so many rows behind them, <laughs> I probably won't even see them. Now, even with Christ's teaching and example, we're still likely to face pitfalls on the road to humility. As Malcolm Muggeridge observed in his book, Jesus, the Man Who Lives, the devil is very patient and he knows how to wait. The offers that Jesus turned down 
in the wilderness found many takers among his ostensible representatives on earth who before many years had passed were having themselves crowned on his behalf, going on crusades to glorify his name and generally managing in a variety of ingenious ways to turn his sayings round to have the exact opposite meaning of what was intended. And the point is this, when we take our eyes off of Jesus, we make ourselves vulnerable, both to the devil and to the ways of this world. And if we don't readjust our perspective quickly, we will find ourselves with blurry vision or even spiritual blindness. C.S. Lewis put it this way, in God, you come up against something which is in every respect immeasurably superior to yourself. Unless you know God as that, and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you do not know God at all. As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. And this raises, he writes, uh, a terrible question. How is it that people who are quite obviously eaten up with pride can say they believe in God and appear to themselves very religious. I'm afraid it means they are worshiping an imaginary God. They theoretically admit themselves to be nothing in the presence of this phantom God, but are really all the time imagining how he approves of them and thinks them far better than ordinary people. That is, they pay a penny worth of imaginary humility to God and get out of it a pound's worth of pride towards their fellow man. I'm thinking now of those who on judgment day are exclaiming, Lord, Lord, And he says to them, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. That is one of the most sobering passages in all of scripture. If the highest holiness is the deepest humility, then the chief mark of counterfeit holiness is the lack of humility. Let me read that again. The chief mark of counterfeit holiness is its lack of humility. Subtle pride revealed itself not only in words or thoughts, but as Murray says, in a tone in a way of speaking to others. I've been guilty of this, sadly, too, way too many times. There was somebody, somebody that I knew from sports and television, and I just have really struggled with this person. Um, I don't like his eye rolls when other people on his team make mistakes. I don't like the way he gets other people canceled and run out of town. I don't like the way that he leaves girlfriends at every uh, bus stop. Just don't like him. <laughs> and uh, I was I've got to be really careful because I'm going to tell you who it is if I'm not. Uh, I 
I was, found myself internally hoping he would fail. And I felt good about myself for hoping that and wanting that. Until, now this particular person was brought up in a Christian home and has walked away from the faith and now considers himself to be an atheist. And I thought, you know, when we fixate on the faults of others, it prevents us from seeing them in any other way, in any other light. We're so filled with condemnation that we have no capacity for compassion. And I started to pray. It broke a long, bad streak. I started to pray for him to return to his roots and to find his savior while there was yet time. Lewis adds that whenever we find that our religious life is making us feel that we are good, above all, that we are better than someone else, I think we may be sure that we are being acted on, not by God, but by the devil. And this I like. The real test of being in the presence of God is that you either forget about yourself altogether or see yourself as a small, dirty object. We cannot assume that we are free of pride merely because we go to church and associate ourselves with talk and songs of holiness. Job tells us that there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan came also among them. Murray warns that the danger of pride is greater and nearer than we think, and especially at the time of our highest experiences. The preacher of spiritual truth with an admiring congregation hanging on his lips. The gifted speaker on a holiness platform expounding the secrets of the heavenly life. The Christian giving testimony to a blessed experience. The evangelist making a, ble made a blessing to rejoicing multitudes. No man knows the hidden, the unconscious danger to which these are exposed. It's easy to think that we have humbled ourselves before God, but humility towards men is the only sufficient proof that our humility before God is real. John's gospel reminds us of this. It reminds us that humility has taken up its abode in us and become our very nature as we behave in humility towards our fellow men. So, this morning, are you clothed with humility? Ask your daily life. Ask Jesus. Ask your friends. Ask the world. The question is, how do we attain humility? And we are getting to the wrap-up stage here. And how do we avoid settling into a life of complacency, false assumptions, and spiritual powerlessness? It is in our most unguarded moments that we really show what we are. We really see what we are. To know the humble man, Murray writes, to know how he behaves, you must follow him in the common course of daily life. Paul spoke often and eloquently about the practice of humility. To the Romans, he writes, in honor, preferring one another. 
Set not your mind on high things, but condescend to those that are lowly. Be not wise in your own conceit. To the Galatians, he says, through love, be servants one of another. Let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another, envying one another. To the Ephesians, therefore walk with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love. To the Philippians, doing nothing through faction or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind, each counting others better than himself. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and humbled himself. And to the Colossians, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another and forgiving each other, even as the Lord forgave you. Murray, who was a pastor, I guess like all pastors, often found himself answering questions posed by his parishioners. He was a humble and gracious man. He was rarely put off. Only one query appeared to stir his passion, which is a nice way of saying kind of got his goat, ticked him off. How can we count others better than ourselves when we can plainly see how far below us in wisdom and in holiness, in natural gifts, or in grace received they are? Well, don't tell me you've never thought that. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't even tally the number of times in a, in a journal as thick as a phone book. Murray responded by saying that this question proves at once how little we understand what real lowliness of mind is. True humility comes when, in the light of God, we have seen ourselves to be nothing and have consented to cast away self. We have to consent to that or it will never happen. The humble man feels no jealousy or envy, and he's able to praise God when others are preferred and blessed before him. You got to work, work at that. He looks upon the feeblest, the humble man. He looks upon the feeblest and the most unworthy child of God, meaning they don't have much to show for themselves, kind of like these revival catalysts I was talking about. He looks upon such people and he honors and prefers them as the child of a king. Unfortunately, such people are all too rare in today's church. I think God has been doing something in this area in this congregation. I felt it uh, last night. It was quite precious and meaningful to me. But speaking largely about the Western church in particular, I think we have wandered far. You listen to the conversations and the prayers and the prophetic declarations of many modern Christians, and you will find them tracking the more courageous virtues, such as boldness or contempt of the world or zeal or self-sacrifice, while the deeper, more heavenly graces, as Murray calls them, such as poverty of spirit, meekness, humility, lowliness, are hardly valued. This is nothing like the attitude that Paul brought to the Corinthians when he said, most gladly, therefore, will I rather glory in my weakness that the strength of Christ may rest upon me. Wherefore, I take pleasure in weakness, for when I am weak, then I am strong. 
he got it. Now, that kind of thing can only come by revelation. You can't roll up your sleeves and produce it. Now, for those who do want this kind of full deliverance from self, Murray offers a clear and unflinching game plan. First, we must place ourselves before God in utter helplessness. That's what it means to be poor in spirit. Acknowledging our impotence to slay or defeat self-pride. Secondly, we must sink down into our own nothingness in meek, patient, and trustful surrender to God. I'm thinking now of the man who was singularly responsible for this mighty revival that uh, launched in the Fiji Islands and is going to this day. Is, it's, there's no end to it. It's, it's like the, the oil that just keeps on pouring. And this man who I knew had been right at the forefront of all of this. I remember we had a large conference with thousands of people down in Brazil on transforming revival. And I was looking for him because I wanted him to share. And I couldn't find him anywhere. And finally, I find, found him sitting by himself with a plastic water bottle out in a corridor or in a chair. And I said, his name is Vuniani. I said, Vuni, what are you doing here? He gave me this little smile. And he said, I'm just celebrating my nothingness. Now, coming from him, knowing his character the way that I do, he's gone on to be with the Lord. He meant every word of that statement. And that's why God chose him and used him in such a, a powerful way. So we must sink down into our own nothingness. Third, we must accept. This is the hard one. We must accept every humiliation and look upon every fellow man who tries or vexes us as a means of grace to humble us. I'd rather find another way, wouldn't you? Fourth, we must routinely seize or create opportunities to serve and humble ourselves before others so that we might learn what it means to abide or live in humility. God will accept such humbling as the proof that our whole heart desires it. Now, that's where I'm at right now. I, I've been... I've been, I've been scorched <coughs> by this message. And I've only begun to realize how far short of this mark I am. And I want, I want to be a humble person. I want to live and walk in humility. And so I told the Lord, I am going to, I'm going to behave in this way towards others. I'm going to invite your involvement in uncomfortable situations. You can't, you can't say that and not have God take you up on it. He already has. He already has. And I, I find my flesh reacting to that and wanting to look for a way of escape. <laughs> Be aware of what you ask for. Now, even if we've experienced times of great humbling and brokenness, this is entirely different 
from being clothed with humility or having a humble spirit. All men, all of us, pass through two stages in pursuit of humility. First stage, we ask that all of our trials would be removed. And then in the second, we glorify in the trials. In this first stage, mainly we are afraid. And we either flee from our trial, like Jonah did, or Peter, when he denied the Lord, or we seek deliverance from the trial, like Job did, and David did, and Paul did. We accept the command to be humble, and we even pray for it. But in our secret heart, we are afraid to be too humble. So we pray more, if not in word, than in wish to be kept from the very thing that would make us humble. As Murray puts it, there is still somewhat of a sense of burden and bondage. Humbling ourselves has not yet become the spontaneous expression of a nature that is essentially humble. Now, those who reach the second stage of glorying in the trial arrive, like Paul did, on the wings of a new revelation of the extraordinary power and humility of the Lord Jesus. Now, there are two instant instances in the New Testament where Jesus reveals this link between humility and faith. The first story, you'll remember it, involves a Roman centurion whose faith caused Jesus to marvel. It's in Luke 7. He, he, he says to Jesus, I don't deserve to have you come under my roof. It's why I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. Jesus hears this and he turns to those that are following him and he said, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. But that faith was born of humility. In the second story, Jesus is speaking to a Syrophoenician mother. She was a Greek woman who lived in the Syrian part of Phoenicia. And her daughter was possessed by an unclean spirit. This is, you can find this story in Mark 7. And Jesus says to her, you remember this, it's, it's kind of a, a shocking thing that he says, uh, I, I, I can't help you, I need to go first to the, the, the children of, of Israel. And um, she says to him, well, even the dogs eat the crumbs from under the table. And he, Jesus, was impressed with her great faith, and he agreed to heal her daughter. It is this kind of humility that removes every hindrance to faith and draws the full presence and power of the glorified Christ into our cause. Lastly, Humility brings exaltation. It doesn't start there, but it ends there. The exaltation is not of men, it is of heaven. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever, oh, by the way, again, this poor in spirit means that we're spiritually homeless. We don't own anything. We've got no resources, no assets at all, no resources of our own. When we get to that place, we are nothing, then Jesus can step in and be something. Whosoever shall humble himself as this little child shall be exalted. A little child is someone who knows little and has little. 
He that is least among you, the same shall be great. He that humbleth himself shall be exalted. And the exaltation that God promises is not and cannot be any external thing apart from himself. All that he has to give, and I love how Murray brings this out, all that God has to give is only more of himself. Now, this whole mindset here, you'll remember Jesus also talked about not going up to the head table, but taking a seat in the back, and if you're invited up, that'll be fine. I was, I was invited with my wife, Carissa, to a concert uh, at, in Branson, Missouri. Uh, a couple of years ago, and we were invited by uh, Ricky Skaggs, who's uh, in the Country Music Hall of Fame and a wonderful performer and, and a believer. And so he arranged to, for us to get some complimentary tickets. We, we took him up because we're on our honeymoon, and so we thought that would be a really cool thing to do. So, um, we get there, though, and, you know, Ricky maybe understood it, knew who we were, but none of these other people did. And they were kind of thinking, oh, okay, a little afraid of him, so they didn't want to kick us to the curb. But we ended up going to the very, very top nosebleed section of this amphitheater with about 4,000 people in it. We weren't even in a row. We were on the concourse, sitting there, I think, next to some people in wheelchairs. Uh, I, mean, you could, I mean, Ricky Skaggs was about that tall, you know? And if he was looking out besides the lights, I mean, we would be about that tall. And I thought, you know what? <laughs> I don't care what anybody thinks. Uh, I'm here, I'm getting what I was invited to enjoy, and I'm happy about it. And. Uh, was great because they even played the song, this bluegrass song that was our wedding recessional. <laughs> and it just, you know, they had no idea. And it just was God doing all these really special things. And then at one point, uh, Ricky says, hey, George, where are you? I mean, he was looking down there thinking we were going to be in some of the front rows where you know, uh, other people that he had invited were, and he couldn't, <laughs> couldn't see us, and finally <laughs> we're waving our hands just because it's going on and on. He said, whoa, how'd you get way up there? The nosebleed section. He, he multiple times during this concert brought, uh, brought us to the attention. We had people looking behind, looking at us, the, the usher there says, well, you really do know uh, Ricky Skagg. And I, I thought about this then, and I think about it now, how like God this is. If we don't seek our own, but we will allow him to exalt us and to invite us up front, it's going to be a great experience. You know, it will always be a great experience. I have a... I, well, I'm, I'm not fully packed in our house, but uh, unpacked in our house, but I, I will shortly unpack a number of photos and drawings of people, famous no-names from around the world, incredible people that I've interviewed that have made their way into some of our, our documentary videos. And I... I put them on the wall of my office a number of years ago. I call it my, my hall of heroes. And I want to look up at these people. I, I want to tell you about several of them right now, but I don't have the time. And uh, I think that we, we need to go out and take pictures of people when we meet them that strike us as bearing the marks of Jesus Christ and put them on our wall to remind us that not everybody is on the internet.
One of my, one of my favorite scriptures is in Isaiah 57, verse 15, where God says, I dwell in the high and lofty place and with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit. This speaks of a duality of divine presence. In the great throne room of the universe, God is there doing his duty. But the humble, the humble, I believe, are God's country cottage. It's where he goes to enjoy himself. Let us be that in the name of Jesus.